0: You're listening to The Mind Manual Podcast, Episode 39, The Mind-Body Connection in the Role of Pain, Depression and Disease. If you want a particular result in your life but you're unable to get it, tune in to start training your brain and expanding your emotional intelligence to unlock the most powerful and underutilized performance tool that we have. It's the most important work you could do because... It affects every area of your life. Hello, everyone. Welcome to another episode. Today, I wanted to go a bit deeper into the whole mind-body connection because it's one where there's not a lot of information or understanding, particularly in the realm of modern medicine. At present, this intricate relationship isn't being fully embraced because doctors are actually trained to perceive the mind and body as distinct entities. This philosophy separating the mind from the body is encapsulated in the concept of mind-body dualism, a notion attributed to the philosopher René Descartes in the 17th century. So in the area of chronic pain, it's a very prevalent challenge that often finds its explanation in structural abnormalities, particularly within the spine. These abnormalities can stem from various sources, including injury, congenital diseases, or simply the natural aging process. However, as medical science progresses, some experts challenge the limitations imposed by the mind-body dualism model. They argue that a sole focus on structural diagnosis using tools like x-rays may not provide a comprehensive understanding. Often, nothing will show in these diagnostic studies. And even when abnormalities are identified, the correlation between the pain isn't always straightforward. The body possesses remarkable healing abilities, which prompts the question, why persist in attributing ongoing pain to structural issues when no clear physiological cause can be identified? This was the dilemma that plagued Dr Sano who was a professor of rehabilitation medicine at the New York University School of Medicine and an attending physician at the university's Department of Rehabilitation Medicine. He was best known for developing the theory of TMS, which stands for tension myositis syndrome. He discovered from his work with patients grappling with chronic persistent pain that the role of muscles, particularly in the neck, shoulders, back and buttocks, were the primary tissues involved. However, he couldn't find a clear physiological cause. He continued working with these patients suffering from this pain and found that nearly 90% of them also suffered from tension-related conditions like heartburn, hernias, irritable bowel syndrome, migraines and eczema. Knowing that emotional and psychological tension could induce these physical conditions, he hypothesized that the patient's otherwise inexplicable pain had the same cause, and he began diagnosing them with TMS. The specific physical reaction that causes this pain is that the emotional tension causes the brain to send signals to the autonomic nervous system, which controls the body's circulation among many other things. And this reduces the blood flow to certain muscles. This reduced blood flow then deprives the muscles of oxygen, which results in pain. Understanding how circulation impacts the body's functioning demonstrates the link between blood flow and chronic pain. Blood is responsible for delivering not only oxygen, but other energy-providing nutrients to muscles. Additionally. It removes waste that builds up from muscle use. Stress is also shown to constrict blood vessels, impairing the body's ability to replenish these nutrients and flush out that waste. And when muscles contract, for example during exercise, blood vessels in those muscles constrict and blood flow is temporarily reduced. When the muscles relax again, the blood flow increases and it remains elevated for a short time to compensate for the temporary reduction during that contraction phase. This allows the body to replenish the muscles and the nutrients and the oxygens and flush out accumulated waste. But when that tense contraction phase happens for an extended period of time, the long-term deprivation of oxygen and nutrients reduces the muscle's ability to heal Now, this could explain why even after a person gets temporary relief from exercise, heat therapy or a massage, their pain quickly returns once the treatment is over. It also highlights the brain's role in this process. Without the brain's commands to the autonomic nervous system to increase blood flow, any increased blood flow will be short-lived. Once treatment is over, the stressed brain will unconsciously signal to the body to reduce that blood flow again. So as our understanding of this mind-body interaction unfolds, the focus shifts to psychosomatic conditions, where the mind's impact on the body becomes evident. This terminology, however, carries negative connotations, leading to debates amongst experts, and some will argue that All physical ailments, not just those related to chronic pain, are intertwined with the mind. Delving deeper into these intricacies, it unravels the link between blood flow and chronic pain. Chronic pain not only impacts physical health, but also mental well-being, which has been shown to correlate with reduced blood flow to muscles. Stress, a common factor in contemporary life, plays a role in constricting these blood vessels, hindering the body's ability to nourish muscles and flush out waste. So the story takes a turn towards the manifestation of emotions as physical symptoms. Freudian psychoanalytic theory contributes a profound insight. Unconscious or repressed emotions, particularly negative ones like shame, sadness, and particularly anger, play a significant role in influencing behaviour and physical states. These emotions, which are often avoided by the conscious mind, will ultimately find expression in physical pain as the autonomic nervous system continues to receive these stressor signals from the unconscious mind, which then go on to impact the neurochemistry of the body, resulting in... Altered states of function throughout the entire body as it prepares for the impending physical conflict that ultimately doesn't eventuate, given that we're no longer being chased by lions and jail we have today as a great deterrent for curbing physical acts of violence. So added to this difficulty of an altered biological physical state, we have that societal backdrop marked by stigma against emotional distress, and so they become repressed, leading to the mind to focus on the physical conditions or manifestations, which are considered a whole lot more socially acceptable in comparison to emotional distress. This stigma against mental illness amplifies the challenge, making it difficult for people to confront and manage negative emotions, perpetuating a whole destructive cycle. Having researched this work, I now look back on my husband's back pain that he has suffered for for the last 16 years, which he no longer has. And over that time, he has spent an extraordinary amount of money and time in physical therapy from physios, osteos, chiropractors, and massage, only for it to return in less than a week. Each day, I would be called upon to step on his back to relieve the tension across the middle of his back but in applying the principles of this research we can link that period in his life to a terrible 15 year family feud now that he has reconciled his own emotions around that the pain and tension in his back has also miraculously resolved moving on to depression interestingly enough in 2022 There were three comprehensive research reviews conducted about the neurobiology of depression. These reviews go against what the general public have routinely heard from psychiatry authorities, that depression is a brain disease, which is caused by, one, specific brain abnormalities revealed by neuroimaging, two, by neurotransmitter chemical defects, most commonly a serotonin chemical imbalance, And three, identifiable genetic defects resulting in increased vulnerability to psychological social stresses. The most powerful evidence was the review published in the journal Neuron and co-authored by Raymond Dolan and the University College of London, who is considered to be one of the most influential neuroscientists in the world. After reviewing more than 16,000 neurobiological articles published during the last 30 years, Dolan concluded that it remains difficult to refute that psychiatry's most fundamental characteristic is its ignorance. Casting a cold eye on the psychiatric neuroimaging literature invites a conclusion that despite 30 years of intense research and considerable technological advances, This enterprise has not delivered a neurobiological account, that is, a mechanistic explanation for any psychiatric disorder, nor has it provided a credible imaging-based biomarker of clinical utility. The second review was conducted by Professor Peter Stirling of Neuroscience at the School of Medicine, University of Pennsylvania, titled, A neuroscientist evaluates the standard biological model of depression. Sterling cites 44 journal publications and summarises four key findings. One, that neuroimaging does not identify brain abnormalities in depressed individuals. Two, genome-wide association studies identify hundreds of variants of small effect, but these do not identify a depressed person. He notes that a great hope for the Human Genome Project, conducted in 2003, was to identify key genetic variants that cause mental disorders. However, no such genetic variants have been identified. And in 2021 investigation, Sterling reviewed, which was published in the Journal of Affective Disorders, it included 5,872 cases. And over 43,000 controls, which examined over 22,000 gene variants. The authors reported that the study fails to identify genes influencing the probability of developing a mood disorder, and no gene or gene set produced a statistically significant result. The third finding, he commented, was that the chemical imbalance theory of depression has failed. For want of evidence, therefore depriving antidepressant drugs of a neuroscientific rationale, and that for depression, while weakly predicted by any biomarker, is strongly predicted by childhood trauma and chronic social stress. The third review was published in the journal Molecular Psychiatry and co authored by psychiatrist Joanna Moncrief at the University College London and is also a co-chair person at the Critical Psychiatry Network. Moncrief and her co-researchers examined hundreds of different types of studies that attempted to detect a relationship between depression and serotonin and concluded that there is no evidence of a link between low levels of serotonin and depression, stating we suggest it is time to acknowledge that the serotonin theory of depression is not empirically substantiated. Psychiatrist Thomas Insel, director of NIMH, which stands for the National Institute of Mental Health, from 2002 to 2015, he acknowledged in 2017 that I have spent 13 years at NIMH, really pushing on the neuroscience and the genetics of mental disorders. And when I look back on that, I realize that. While I think I succeeded at getting lots of really cool papers published by cool scientists at fairly large costs, I think $20 billion, I don't think we moved the needle in reducing suicide, reducing hospitalizations, improving recovery for tens of millions of people who have mental illness. Bruce Levine, a practising clinical psychologist, writes and speaks about how society, culture, politics, and psychology intersect. In his most recent book, A Profession Without Reason, The Crisis of Contemporary Psychiatry, he explores the competing interests that are heading up our current management model for depression. Levine refers to a government survey which was reported in the New York Times titled, Talk Doesn't Pay, So Psychiatry Turns Instead to Drug Therapy. The survey found that just... 11% of psychiatrists provided talk therapy to all patients. He goes on to say that if you actually spend time with depressed people, it's obvious that the common ingredient they share is overwhelming pain and it's not that difficult to discover the source of that pain. The most common pains include severe chronic physical pain, severe financial pain, legal pain, severe interpersonal pains, unhealed trauma and overwhelming existential pains. In one study of unhappily married women who were diagnosed with depression, 70% of them believed that their marital discord preceded their depression and 60% believed that their unhappy marriage was the cause of their depression. Yet rather than focusing on these variables... There is a stacked deck of competing interests from large players to focus on biochemical electrical causality and ignore the scientific realities. The most obvious are the pharmaceutical companies themselves. In 2001, CNN reported that since it was launched in early 1988, Prozac has been one of the biggest selling drugs in history. It's $21 billion in sales represents some 30% of Lilly's revenues in that period. And as we continue to follow the money, in 2019, according to Media Radar, Big Farmers' $6.6 billion yearly spending on TV ads ranked it as the fourth largest spender of TV ads in the United States. Now, given that mainstream media is dependent on these large advertising dollars, it is majorly disincentivized from doing serious investigative journalism on Big Pharma and its drugs. Now, a bit further down the money trail, we now have disclosure of direct payments of pharmaceutical companies to physicians. In 2021, it was reported that from 2014 to 2020, Big Pharma paid $340 million to US psychiatrists to serve as their consultants, their advisors, and their speakers. The open database lists over 31,000 psychiatrists, roughly 75% of all psychiatrists in the United States, receiving something of value from drug companies. Then we have the researchers and the mental illness institutions, such as the American Psychiatric Association, the National Alliance on Mental Illness, the National Institute of Health, and the National Institute of Mental Health, all receiving funding from Big Pharma. And now onto the political path. We have a societal hierarchy who prefers to retain the social, economic, political status quo. Now, they know that if the population believes its mental health is due to neurobiological defects, rather than its emotional suffering caused by social, economic, political factors, then the former belief system will be much more powerful and less expensive way of maintaining the status quo than a heavily armed police force. Meanwhile, Psychology Today reported in 2022 how two professors and researchers, Geoffrey Lacaze and Jonathan Leo, began to question whether the claims made for antidepressants in the multi-billion dollar ad campaigns pitched directly to consumers were actually congruent with the scientific evidence. They found repeated evidence that the US FDA had approved the marketing of antidepressants with two phrases still heavily expressing what was wished for or imagined, which were that depression Maybe due to a serotonin deficiency, and that their efficacy modestly outcompeted the placebo, which was presumed to be linked to potential serotonin activity. This flew in the face of the research that could not identify this link. The FDA had accepted this aspirational language that the drugs help to restore the brain's chemical balance and bring serotonin levels closer to normal, even though both claims were and still remain scientifically meaningless. Lacaze and Leo cautioned more than a decade ago that there is no such thing as a scientifically established correct balance of serotonin. The researchers in the third review team, led by psychiatrist Joanna Moncrief, also looked at studies where serotonin levels had been artificially lowered in hundreds of healthy volunteers and found that it did not produce depression. Numerous other reviews on re-examination were found to provide weak, inconsistent or non-existent evidence of a connection between serotonin and depression. Moncrief published these findings in the journal Molecular Psychiatry in July 2022. So this multi-billion dollar error, which relied on embracing a marketing myth, proved very effective. Skyrocketing sales and converting the chemical imbalance metaphor into folk wisdom across all sectors of society. In surveys published as late as 2020, 85 to 90% of the public believe that depression is caused by low serotonin or a chemical imbalance. And among 237 psychology students interviewed, 46% of them had heard the chemical imbalance explanation from a physician. Lacaze and Leo questioned the ethics of spreading this false scientific information. And in the same year, 2022, the FDA finally decided to investigate the matter further. Their Centre for Drug Evaluation and Research examined 232 randomized, double-blind, placebo-controlled trials on antidepressant. Now, these trials were submitted by the drug companies themselves to the FDA between 1979 and 2016, and they comprised of over 73,000 adult and child participants. These clinical trials are usually short-term in nature of around six weeks, And what they found was that only 15%, that's one five, 15% of participants have a substantial antidepressant effect beyond a placebo effect. And in the long-term outcome studies, they were much worse. A study of over 3,200 subjects over a nine-year period showed that antidepressant users had significantly more severe symptoms than those individuals not using antidepressants. This antidepressant reality was summarised by Clinical Psychology Review in 2022 to say that the increased availability of effective treatments should shorten depressive episodes. They should reduce relapses and curtail recurrences. Have these reductions occurred? The empirical answer clearly is no. So where to from here? Apart from the research findings and the effects of stressful life events having a strong effect on people's risk of becoming depressed, more recently there has been a Harvard-led analysis published in the September 2023 issue of JAMA Network Open, which assessed the eating habits and mental health status of more than 21,000 women aged between 42 and 62, taking part in a long-running Nurses' Health Study. None of the participants reported any depression symptoms at the study's start. And those who ate ultra-processed food, defined as at least nine servings per day, were 50% more likely to develop depression than the participants who ate the least, which was defined as no more than four servings daily. Consuming many foods and drinks containing artificial sweetness was linked to a particularly large increase in depression risk. Now, this all points to the microbiome in our gut, known as the enteric brain, as being another big area that warrants further investigation. And I've previously discussed the implications of getting our microbiome out of balance in another episode titled The Importance of the Enteric Brain. And having experienced the dilemmas of my own son's journey with this, which has hugely impacted the quality of his life, there are many reasons for this, but the main ones identified in the studies were antibiotic use, a poor diet of processed foods, and alcohol and stress. Now, you would think that given 70% of the immune system is found in the microbiome of the gut, and it's also where many of our neurotransmitters are produced, by the microbiome as a byproduct of their metabolic activity. These neurotransmitters regulate almost every function within the body. That this might actually be a good place to invest further research work. However, it doesn't make commercial sense for big pharma to be getting too close to the solution if it doesn't involve a pill or a customer for life. Governments are going to be needed in order to advance this work. And I can tell you after researching this area for the past two and a half years, there isn't a lot of it out there. Doctors don't know anything about the microbiome, they're not taught about it. There isn't one compulsory subject on nutrition in the whole medical degree. So we are dealing with a broken system that has lots of competing interests in not going down that path. These findings highlight the importance of embracing a holistic understanding that also acknowledges the profound impact of emotions on physical health and the imperative of addressing societal stigmas to pave the way for comprehensive healing. In the meantime, the best investment we could make in our health and quality of life is going to be eating a diet of whole, unprocessed foods and doing the mental and emotional work in learning how to process our thoughts and feelings so that we're not living our life at the effect of them. If you'd like to join me on this journey, you can visit themindmanual.com forward slash join. I'd love to see you there. Thanks for listening. Talk again soon.